Well, we're working through this series, um, the book of Esther. Uh, for such a time as this, we've called, us, called it for the simple reason that in so many ways, although it is a story which is written firstly thousand or so years, a thousand years ago, uh, 1,500 years now, two, two and a half thousand years ago, something like that. Uh, even though it is such a, a distant time, there are themes which occur in it which speak so powerfully to the world that we live in, to our own individual situations, to the greater situation of nations and powers and authorities and all of those kind of things. So although there is a, a key verse which we will come to, Uh, in the next few weeks, which does speak very powerfully that Esther was where she was for just the time, there is a sense in which, and this is the wonderful thing about God's Word, is it continues to have a sense of immediate relevance for the day in which we live. There is a sense in which, because it is God's Word, it continues to speak in the generation that we live in. There are, I guess there are two reasons for that. One reason is because it is what it is. It is not simply uh, a book of words written by men, but it is the breathed out communication of God to his people for all time. There is a sense in which it retains that uh, ability to communicate powerfully because of what it is. There is another sense in which it continues to speak because we are not any different than we have been through history. And I think that's a really important thing to think about in our generation because we tend to think that we are so much more advanced, so much more uh, developed that the things that we are dealing with uh, and the way that we think, we are so uh, so much clearer in our thinking Uh, so much wiser that that really anything from the past, anything historical, there are two problems in many people's minds. One, we can't trust history because of the way it's written, and it's always written from a certain perspective. You know, it all depends on who wrote the history as to what we think of that history. Uh, And the second reason is because we think that they really didn't understand. We, We really have a sense of arrogance. Can I just suggest one thing to you. There is something really challenging when you think that every generation down through history, every major shift has always thought of that of the previous generation. And yet what we realize more and more is that we can be less and less secure and confident in our own thoughts of today. There are areas where we don't feel anywhere near as confident. It was one of the great challenges of the world that we now live in. There is an instability with what we now understand and believe to be absolutely true. We're no longer so confident as we were a century ago. And here we are, we're now in a world where we're very unstable in in lots of things. I want to encourage you, what is your absolute foundational basis on which you are living your life? Is it just an accident or is is there something deeper? That's what comes through in this book. This constant idea that behind all of the shifts and changes of the political scene... In the Persian court, 
there is a stability and an absolute which is the God who created the world. That's the idea behind it. Behind this story, even though God is not mentioned, is the working hand of God present in the world in this specific situation. So a quick recap, we've got the king and queen, King Xerxes and Vashti. They've had a conflict, she's been kicked out. King Vashti has looked for another uh, queen in a very convoluted way. And what's ended up is that a young Jewish woman named Esther has ended up in the place of being queen. Remarkable series of events that have placed her in just that position. Again, one of the things that we've seen as we've gone along is that we get that hand of God, that kind of fingerprint of God. You've seen it on TV, haven't you? Uh, there's, the, you know, there's some kind of uh, a scene, a crime scene, and we, the, the forensic investigators go in to see how can we understand what has gone on and there's the fingerprints all over the place. And it's that fingerprint which says, well, it's that person. Even though that person isn't currently present, we see the fingerprint, the residue, if you like, of that uh, person on, in that crime scene. In a much greater, in a much more beautiful, in a much more righteous way, one of the things that the Bible is doing for us through the Old Testament is it's placing the fingerprint of God into history. We're beginning to understand that, ah, yeah, that it's, although it isn't literally a fingerprint, we get the mark of what it is for God to work in history. That idea that God is uh, breaking in to the real events of humanity. And so we've got Queen Esther, who's in this situation, surprising. And then we find out that her uh, older cousin, who has been looking after her, she's an orphan girl, and uh, her older cousin, Mordecai, uh, is taking care of her. She's in a beautiful home context, ripped out of that, taken into the royal court. And he ends up right at the king's gate, uh, it seems, on the basis of various other things, it seems as though he has some sort of role, not in the inner court, but on the periphery of the royal court. But he's constantly there keeping an ear out, wanting to know what's going on. His care for Esther does not diminish because she's disappeared into the harem of the king. He protects the king by intervening, and then he causes a huge amount of problem for his people Uh, Because he refuses to bow down in front of this guy, Haman. Uh, We've already seen last week that Haman is an Agagite, which means that he carries the the fingerprint, again, of those who are opposed to God. If you like, there is that, that picture that goes on. The Agagites down through history have been those who have been opposed to God's people. Why do we read about in uh, the beginning uh, part of chapter 3? We read that, or our reading here... Uh, we read that uh, Haman was an Agagite um, in verse 10, uh, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Do you see that? It's that marker that highlights, if you like, this is not just a man in a particular role in the royal court who happens to have had a beef with Mordecai. There is somebody here who represents the historical opposition to the work of God in the world. Very important that we see that that's one of the roles that 
Haman plays in this story. It's about a bigger story all the time. It's about, yes, it's about individuals, but it's the bigger story. And it helps us to understand when we see uh, this, I've called this this afternoon, this is a game of thrones, really. I wonder where I got that from. Uh, It's a game of thrones. It's this idea of playing with power. What is going on? What is happening is that there is a, yes, there is Xerxes and Haman who are uh, in this position of responsibility and authority, but because of who Haman is and because of who Esther is, there is this bigger idea that this is, if you like, a representation of the cosmic battle and crisis between those opposed to God and the those who are God's people living in the world. The New Testament wants us to understand that that is what is going on all the time. God's people are God's people in the world, and behind that, there is a cosmic conflict. There is the reality of principalities and powers unseen, and yet worked through principalities and powers in this world, who are constantly opposing the work and ministry of God in this world. Now, the great encouragement that the Bible wants us to see through stories like this, through the way it develops throughout time, is, do you know what? Here we are, two and a half thousand years later, they haven't won. (laughs) Those principalities and powers have not silenced the work of God in the world. We are here today talking about Queen Esther, talking about King Xerxes, talking about events precisely because the gospel has not been silenced. Because God is triumphing. God has triumphed. That's one of the things that we see. But what we see here is three things. We're going to see the responsibility of power. The responsibility of power. We're going to see the terror of pride. And we're going to see the hope of justice. First thing, responsibility of power. There's Uncle Ben in Spider-Man, according to Stan Lee, who said, with great power comes great responsibility. This is my gift. This is my curse. Do you remember the moment he's just walking away from, um, from the grave of Uncle Ben and he's, kind of, he's got this kind of uh, existential battle going on in his mind. Am I Spider-Man? Who am I? I? I have this responsibility. And then he remembers these wonderful words of Uncle Ben. The only problem was it was actually probably written originally by Voltaire uh, and it was not originally Spider-Man's words. But having said that, With great power comes great responsibility. Here we see two men with great power. Great power. We need to understand as believers in Jesus that that power that is granted to individuals in ruling situations throughout the history of time is not their capability and political savvy to get to that point. In human terms, it looks like that. 
In human terms, it looks as if, as if the political maneuverings and the clever abilities and all of those kind of things are precisely the things that get various people to positions of power and authority. That's, if you like, a view from our perspective. One of the things that the Bible encourages us to see is it might look like that in human terms, but the reality is that it is God who has granted those individuals that kind of power and that kind of authority at any point in time. And with that comes great responsibility. Why? If, if we were able to understand that, if anybody here in this room was going to find the opportunity through their career to end up as Prime Minister of this country, if you understood that you were in that position, not because you'd made it, you had achieved it, but rather because God had granted you that responsibility, it changes, doesn't it? It changes your attitude to the role that you are performing, or it should do. Now, the reality is, friends, it doesn't have to be prime minister of the country, does it? To have that kind of power, well, to have power and authority. It doesn't have to be that you are in a position of great authority, Many of us here in this room, in different ways, have different levels of responsibility and power because it has been given to you by God. Understand that. That is a a life-shifting perspective in how you understand where you are in your particular role on your career path, wherever you might be. The fact that you are where you are, the fact that you are, let's say in a position of responsibility in front of that classroom of 30 little ones who are under 10, who are at that moment in time in your care, under your uh, responsibility, that is not something that has been granted because of your ability. Of course, God has given you the gifts and skills to be able to do that, But God has given you the gifts and skills to be able to do that. God has given you that responsibility in that classroom. God has given you that responsibility in that office or in that workshop or wherever it might be. We carry those responsibilities because God has given them to us. That perspective changes everything in the way we then use that responsibility. Let's see a picture here of the responsibility of power. Here we have um, this man, Haman, or Haman, uh, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the fifth month, the month of Nisan, uh, the pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day in a month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. In other words, look at the way it works. He's decided... He's decided that I am going to find a way to destroy all of the Jews. It is just a massive, crazy response as a result of Haman, not, uh, Mordecai, not being willing to bow down before him. It's kind of blown out of all proportion. And that, that fact, remember this is the way the story is unfolding. The narrator is wanting us to ask, Why is that? 
Why is it that one man doesn't bow down before him and his response is to want to destroy all of the nation that that man belongs to? If we're beginning to understand the way the story works, we should be asking, maybe it's because there is something going on even behind Haman. There is a greater power that is challenging God's people. Here's the opportunity. But look at the way he uses his God. And I've used those words very deliberately. Look at the way he uses his God. He doesn't just, having decided that he wants to kill, that's his decision, I'm going to kill them all. He then turns to, basically, the casting of the lot, placing it in the hands of the gods, if you like, to decide how he is or when he is going to execute that deliver that uh, death for the people. The casting of the lot. So many people think about their relationship with whatever kind of deity they have in their mind in just that way. I've made my decisions. And now I will use my idea of God to serve my decisions. To, de- to, to, to kind of make sure that I'm kept on track in the things that I want to do. Here's my decision. I'm going to kill them all. Now I'm going to throw it over to the, to the gods to work out when I'm going to do what I've already decided. In other words, the idea of some kind of deity, some kind of spirituality, is there to serve me. It's there to achieve my desires. It's there to to achieve my ambitions. I will use that idea of God. Can I just suggest that it is very easy, if you are coming to the idea of the Christian faith, It is very easy to come to the idea of the God of the Bible in precisely the same way. I will come along and I will find a way to make sure that this God, this Jesus, delivers for me. I'll come along and I'll have all of the ideas of what I want. All of these tick boxes of the kind of idea of what a comfy life looks like. The ambitions that I might have. And I will expect the idea of the God of the Bible to to be there to serve me. You know the only way in which the God of the Bible serves you? Is by dying for you. That's what the Bible says about Jesus. It says he came not to be served, but to serve. He serves you by dying for you so that you might be forgiven, liberated, and placed in citizenship within his nation so that you then might be the people of God to serve the King Jesus. He serves you. Oh, yes, but he serves you so that you might be freed to love and to serve him. (laughs) What a remarkably different perspective the Christian faith calls us to have about the idea of our relationship with God. You see, we kind of think it's either one or the other. It's either 
Uh, It's either this God who's all-powerful, who we've got to serve, who's up there and distant and far away, or it's a God God who I can use to serve me. (laughs) And the God of the Bible comes in and it destroys both of those ideas. It says, I am not a distant God, I have come to serve you. But in serving you, I become the God who is worthy of your worship, your praise, and your servanthood. Turns both of us upside down. So if we have the idea that God is distant and all-powerful and some kind of uh, kind of distant deity who's got the, the, the rod to beat us with, Jesus comes along and he says, no, I've come to serve you. Don't think about me in that way. I've come to serve you so that you might know me, so that you might love me. So if we come in fear and trembling, he comes as a servant king to encourage us, to lift us up, to help us and to guide us. But if we come with the idea that I am, I'm going to use this God to serve me, he reminds us that he is the God who will be served. Wherever we come from, the message of the gospel of Jesus is going to disturb us, disrupt our thinking, challenge us, and make us, cause us to think in a different way to the way we naturally think. Here we've got this king who decides um, on the basis of Haman coming into him, and he says, there's this people, they're dispersed amongst all the people, and uh, they're terrible, shocking people. They keep themselves to themselves. Their customs are different from uh, uh, those of all other people. They do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. In other words, what Haman does is he comes in and he comes with this flattering tongue. This way of persuading the king that these terrible people, they're just against you. They're just terribly against you. Now, the, the, the story, the, the beautiful irony of the story is the person that has been at the very point of crisis, the one who has caused this conflict in the mind of Haman, the one who, who he is saying, they do not serve you, the king, they don't have your best interests at heart, is the very person who had Xerxes' best interest at heart just a few uh, minutes ago as we read through the story. Just a few minutes ago in the story, it was Mordecai who saved the skin of Xerxes because he did have his best interests at heart. And now Haman comes in and says, these Jews, they, you know, they, just, they, don't, they don't sit in our society. They're just against us all the time. They hate you. They're subversive. They're going to be a problem. Let's get rid of them. Oh, and by the way, I'll also give you 10,000 talents of silver for the royal treasury. It is a terrifying thing to see how human pride can get so out of control. It is frightening, isn't it? Here's this man. He hates this man so much that he wants to kill all of the people who are related to him. And he will even give the king 10,000 talents of silver so that that can be achieved. Now, the reality is he's got a plan to recover far more than that. 
as he, as he destroys them and takes their livelihood. But what a picture of the corrupt nature of the human condition. Here's the challenge. The reason that Haman is portrayed in this way is to expose to us and to make us think that's what human beings can be like. We are not that distant. We all have the potential to allow our bitterness, to allow our pride, to drive us to levels of hatred. None of us, as far as I'm aware, have got the opportunity to have 10,000 talents of silver at our disposal to ensure that our pride is delivered in an effective way and satisfied. Maybe not. But we are all far more like Haman than we would uh, like to admit. We all have the potential for our pride to get out of control. We have that. All of us, because that's part of our problem. Oh, it might not be seen by many people. It might not even be seen by anybody. Nobody might know your bitterness towards another person. You might be sweetness and light but deep down your bitterness towards that person whatever it might be is tearing you apart it's just eating away is filling you every little thought it seems to be directed to this particular issue that's where Haman had got to everything is directed to this issue it happens doesn't it That is the problem of the human condition. And with this responsibility, the flattery of Haman gets the king to do just what he says. Proverbs 26, 27 and 8 says this, Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. If someone rolls a stone, it will roll back on them. Lying tongue hates those it hurts, and a flattering mouth works ruin. There is a sense in which those words are actually prophetic in the life of Haman. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. Let's just see how the story unfolds over these next weeks. But there is a warning. The Bible is very practical in lots of ways. It's wanting us to say, confront the problems of our pride. Confront the reality. Use our responsibility wisely and in a God-honoring way. Use those, the granting of that power and responsibility that God has given you in whatever context it might be. Use it with responsibility. The king doesn't. He's previously been told something which affected him personally. Somebody's wanting to kill you, Xerxes. Oh, I'll go away and I'll make sure whether that's true or not. We read that in chapter 2, verse 23, where it says, when the report was investigated and found to be true, he acted. Haman comes in uh, and he gives him this great spiel, which is not about two people who are threatening the king. This is about a vast number of people This is about a people group within the empire of the Persian people. Within the Persian empire, a huge people group that Haman is saying we need to kill all of them. 
And the king took the signet ring off his finger and handed it over to Haman. He said, you just do what you want. What a picture of responsibility ignored. Self-serving. When it's about the possibility that somebody is looking to kill the king, then he wants to investigate it diligently. When it's about an issue of a people group who doesn't affect him, he says to Haman, just do what you want. People are disposable to this man. What a terrible situation. The terror of pride we see in the very act of Haman. The honor of the king is not enough in his mind. The death of Mordecai is not enough. A massive financial bribe becomes part of it. And he works diligently to secure his pride. What a terrible picture. Listen to what it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 16. It says this. One of the ideas, just as a quicker uh, introduction, one of the ideas that Ecclesiastes has is the idea of under the sun and then a bigger picture. The under, under the sun is what it looks like when I view the world. When I view it without thinking about the idea of God, when I look around at the world, this is what it looks like. I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes says when he looks around. In places where God has given responsibility, in places of judgment and justice, he sees wickedness. You know, to be honest, folks, without making any political comment, specifically, we look around the world today, And again, and again, and again, and again, in places of justice, in places of judgment, what do we see? Wickedness. We see wickedness in this world, in places where God has granted responsibility. People are in the place that they are in, not by accident, but because God has granted it. What do we do about that? How do we respond to that? Well, in one sense, we can say this with great hope and with great confidence. When Jesus says this, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. In other words, the, 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 the eternal perspective is this. And the great confidence that we have is this. We, we, we hate injustice. We hate wickedness. I, I personally think that the church, our, our church, the kind of churches that we've been from in the past, my church here as well, I guess, we have not spoken openly and honestly about how much we despise wickedness. And how the the oppression of the poor and the vulnerable is an abomination. 
But you know, we are not helpless. Because the long perspective says this, that God's judgment will not stand for it. That is great news. When we feel helpless, the Bible message is we are not. Because we have an advocate in heaven, we have a God who will ultimately, eternally, cosmically judge. This great cosmic battle which is going on, God will judge. And He will demand much of those who have been granted responsibility. Those who have been entrusted with much. Jesus will demand much at that final judgment. And I look at that and I think, you know, there are many times, I guess, in my experience, maybe when you, in your experience as well, where I look and I think, I have not, uh, I have not delivered my responsibilities effectively. I confess that I have not done that well, maybe at times. Maybe you can look back and you say, I have been self-serving in that situation or in that situation. What do I do in the face of judgment in the future for my failures back there? you know what? That's where the cross comes in. That is where the message of the good news of the gospel comes in. By confronting the reality of my failure back there, I am able to say, but my failure, the fact that Jesus will demand much of my responsibility that has been entrusted to me, and he looks at that account and he will say, you have failed. He will say, but the great news is I have borne the guilt. But if I am not in that position of being able to say that Jesus is bearing my guilt and responsibility for my failure to deliver in the areas which he has entrusted to me, then I will carry that responsibility into eternity. That's good news. That's good news in Syria right at this point in time. That is good news that Jesus will not allow that to go unheeded. Jesus will not allow that to go without some kind of cosmic eternal judgment in the future. In Serbia, Milosevic, war crimes, Hitler. The history of the world is littered with injustice We might even begin to think we live in a seemingly Orwellian society where we're increasingly thinking, are we under some sort of big brother control where responsibilities are not being delivered effectively? You know, whatever the outcome is, in exactly the same way as it was in Persia two and a half thousand years ago, the same exists today. God is in control behind the scenes. Oh yes, we're now seeing that Haman is putting in place a plan to kill all of his people. The great news is that God has already put Esther in the right place. That's, do you see the way the story is beginning to unfold? It's not as though God is reacting. It's God is there before In the face of the opposition, God is in the situation. 
In the fact that now we see Haman beginning to rise up and being prepared to deliver death to all of God's people, here we see God has already been the first mover in this game of conflict, in this game of power. He is the one who has first moved. The hope of justice is just that. The idea that Jesus the one who came into this world and bears the guilt, is also the one who one day will judge. He is the one who will judge in the future. Paul makes that very clear when he speaks to people who hadn't heard anything about Jesus. Acts chapter 17, they didn't know about him. He was the unknown God to them. And he says, you need to understand in times past that God has spoken. But now he calls every single person, he demands of you and he demands of me that we are to repent and to follow him, to be obedient to him. In fact, he has appointed for every single one of us a judgment. There is a judgment for every single human being who has ever lived in the face of this earth. And the judge that God has appointed is the one who he raised from the dead. Paul doesn't speak about the Jesus and the death on the cross or anything like that. He talks about the big idea of God as judge. You know, we need a judge. We really do. We, we might, on a personal level, not like the idea of a judge. But when we think about profound injustice in the world, we realize that we desperately need a judge. Somebody who's going to resolve all of the injustice in all of history. And we look at that and we say the great news is that God is going to judge. And he is going to judge through the one who he raised from the dead. It's a remarkable verse which tells us the purpose, at least part of the purpose, of Jesus' resurrection and triumph over death so that he can be the one who both frees and liberates those who trust in him and becomes their advocate and also becomes the judge of those who don't trust in him. Hope of justice. Haman's now planning He's worked it out. And there's a, just at the close of this, there's a lovely little phrase. Verse 15. The king, who is just not bothered, gives him the ring. You, here's my, here's my, here's my uh, signet ring of absolute authority. You go and use that however you want. And so Haman then has in his hand, literally in his hand, he has absolute power in that empire. So he thinks. So he thinks. And he gets the satraps to come in and they write out this edict that there is going to be on one single day liberty and freedom for every person to rise up against the Jews and to kill them and to take their possessions. And it carries the seal of the king. The power of the king says, now just remind ourselves what that means. 
remind ourselves what that means. The law of the Medes and the Persians, we've already seen, cannot be repealed. Once that that signet ring presses into that wax, that is it. It is going to happen according to the law that we see written here. And they're going to wipe them all out. And all of these edicts go across all of the nations in all of the languages. Right at the end it says this. The couriers went out spurred on by the king's command and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. And then the king and Haman sat down to drink. It's a bit of a theme going on here, isn't there? It's just this repeated kind of self-indulgence picture. I, I guess maybe for Haman at this point in time, there might deep down have even been a little bit of silencing the conscience. A bit of that sort of Dutch courage to say, I've done the right thing, when deep down his conscience is screaming to him that he has just sealed the death of thousands upon thousands of men, women, and children. Let me silence it with a drink, is his decision. But the city of Susa were bewildered. I think that's fascinating. Why? Because what Haman has said is these Jews, they're terrible, shocking people. They keep themselves to themselves. They're awful people. They they don't respect the king. They don't respect society. We need to get rid of them. The edict goes out and there's people looking at it thinking, this is crazy. What's gone on? These are not the people. This is not the kind of person that I spend my time working with on a daily basis. Why would, what's gone on? They are bewildered. In other words, there's a little indication, a little hint here. And this is an encouragement uh, for those who are believers in Jesus, that back there, these people had learned a way to live faithfully in Susa, and yet were still known to be Jews. They were bewildered. They had this conflict in their minds. What kind of person is this? person who I now kill? On the basis of the king. We're now really right at the precipice, aren't we? The death sentence has been signed. It cannot be repealed. They are going to die. All of the queen's country, men, women, and children, in the whole of the empire, their death sentence has now been signed. It is months away. We're going to see over the next period of time how God is reminding us in the face of seeming completely irreversible, absolute, certain death, there is life. 